All right, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What an interesting providence that our nation of the month, this month, would be England in light of the transition that they're undergoing right now. A timely time to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in England. Romans 8, verse 1. Over the last two years, we've been in a deep study into Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we continue our study of Romans this fall by diving into Romans 8. And you might wonder, why are we spending so long in Romans? Why are we spending so long in one letter that Paul wrote? He wrote many letters. Why spend this much time here? Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the principal reasons is that I think we desperately need to hear the gospel. And not just like once, but we need to hear the gospel all the time, all of us. I think our friends, our families, our neighbors, our world needs to hear the gospel. And I think Romans presents us with an opportunity to take the, the gem, so to speak, of the gospel, the jewel of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has very many facets and to turn it in the light of the Holy Spirit's illumination and to look at it, to look and wonder at just how beautiful the gospel is. And Romans gives us an opportunity. So to take our time slowly over years in the book of Romans is of a benefit to all of us, whether we've heard the gospel a thousand times or if this is the first time for us to hear it. Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the letter to the church in Rome. It is the pinnacle. It is the peak. It is indisputable that Romans 8 is the high point in what is a very substantive and rich and sometimes dense letter from Paul to the church in Rome. That's why we're going to spend the next 11 weeks here. But maybe you've forgotten what we discussed in Romans 1 through 7, or maybe you're relatively new to Mosaic, or maybe you haven't set foot in a church in a long time, and you're wondering, well, I don't really know what's come before. If you're in Romans 8, how, how can I kind of catch up here? So let me just kind of rewind us a little bit and just do a little bit of review just so that we can remember together. And I think Romans 8 will land with more impact if we remember what's come before. Paul's letter to the church in Rome, what we call the letter to the Romans, is a missionary letter. It's a missionary letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Rome. And this audience in Rome, this group of Christians in Rome, it's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And there's some level of division in the church that Paul's speaking to. We don't know all the details, but we do know there's some level of dissension and division and disagreement at the church in Rome. Paul has never been to this church, but he is headed there, and they certainly know Paul by reputation. The church in Rome is aware of who Paul is, and they're aware of his apostolic authority. Paul is an apostle. He's the last of the apostles. And they're aware that Paul carries with him a degree of authority that very few others could claim. And he's writing this letter to them with one central message. And are you ready for it? This is the central message. We've been doing this every time we start in on another part of Romans. We've started here. The central message of Paul's letter to the church in Rome is the gospel. The good news that God saves and God reigns. We've talked about the gospel as having a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. The good news of the gospel is that God saves. That's the vertical dimension. That's often what we think of as the gospel, as kind of the conversation between me and God, that God saves, that we stand in need of salvation and God is gracious to provide it. 
that is one crucial dimension of the good news of the gospel. But it's not the only dimension. Because there's a horizontal dimension to the good news of the gospel, and it's that God reigns. So the gospel is the central message to the church in Rome, and it's the good news that God, God saves and God reigns. Now, Paul in Romans 1 through 3 was trying to give us the bad news of the good news of the gospel. And that's how Romans starts out, with some bad news, which is that you and I desperately lack the one thing that we radically need for fellowship with God. And do you know what that is? Righteousness. We desperately lack righteousness. We do not have a righteousness on our own. We cannot meet the righteous requirement of the law. And the first three chapters of the letter to the church in Rome is all about that lack. It's about the problem. It's about the bad news of the good news of the gospel, which is that we are born into this world unrighteous. But in Romans 4, Paul begins to shift our attention. He begins to give us a little bit of a sign that there is a hope that even though we are born unrighteous, God will supply what we desperately need, which is righteousness. And he invokes a couple of people to make this argument. He invokes Abraham David. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Israelite imagination, but if you wanted a mic drop moment, you would invoke the name of Abraham or David. To invoke Abraham's name was to invoke the covenant father of Israel. It was a big, big mic drop. But to invoke David's name was to invoke the name of the best king of time of Israel's blessedness in the land when it felt like everything was going right for Israel. And in Abraham and David, Paul points to him and says, there was a hope for righteousness. And it was not the good works of Abraham, nor was it the good works of David. It was that they believed God and he counted their belief in him as righteousness. In Romans 5, Paul explains what was implicit in Romans 4. And he says in verse 1, of Romans 5. Listen to this because you're going to hear a bit of a resonance of this, an echo of this in our verse for today. But in Romans 5.1, what does he say? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 begins to make explicit what was implicit in chapter 4, that there is a hope for salvation, and that hope is the justifying work of God. That only God can give us what we desperately need for fellowship with God. What we desperately need for salvation, which is righteousness. From this, Paul lays a new foundation for the church in Rome. That we are not saved by works, but we are saved by being justified, by being declared righteous by God in Jesus. This is a work that happens by grace. We can't do it on our own through faith in Jesus. In Jesus, and in Romans 6 through 7, he anticipates that they might say, well, if I've received salvation by grace, I can kind of live however I want, right? Like, if I've been saved by grace, I can do whatever I want. But in Romans 6, he says, no, no, no. What more shall we say? Are we to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. So Paul anticipates their argument. He anticipates their objection. You might think, well, if God forgives me, then that forgiveness is now a foundation to live however I want. But Romans 6 and 7 is saying no. The foundation of forgiveness is a foundation not just for fellowship with God, but for being transformed into the image of God. So God declares you righteous so that you increasingly begin to look righteous. 
That's what happens. Romans 6-7 through 7 is about sanctification. That on the foundation of being declared righteous by God, we are now made to be righteous. That we become better. We become good because God has now made us alive in Christ Jesus. But Romans 7 ends with a dire question. Because Paul acknowledges that it's a struggle to follow God. It's a struggle to follow God because of the temptations of the flesh. It's a struggle to follow God because of sin and its impact on us. So look at how Romans 7 ends. Look in your Bibles if you have them. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul ends with this question and he begins to answer it at the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he begins to breathe out his answer. But in Romans 8.1 we get what is maybe the best single sentence summary of the gospel. The good news that God saves that we could ask for. So I'm going to read Romans 8, verse 1, and then I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do this is to give thanks for God. You are invited to respond and say, thanks be to God, that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. So let me read Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay, this is good. This is so good. If you had asked 22-year-old Kyle Worley starting in in vocational ministry as a youth minister in Groves, Texas, what are you most eager to preach to the church one day? I would have told you Romans chapter 8. And it is taking 13 years to get here. And I am excited. I am excited. This is like the firing gun at the starting line for the next 11 weeks. And if I could have justified doing 22 weeks here, I would have done it. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we see the therefore in scripture, we ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Well, we just recap, the therefore is there for a reason, and it's to point back at everything that has already come before, Romans 1 through 7. This question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The problem of our unrighteousness. When we hear this verse, it's only good news if we understand what condemnation is. Because we can't really celebrate it if we don't really understand it. We can't really celebrate that there is no condemnation unless we know what condemnation is. Right? So what is condemnation? If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's crucial that we undertake the heaviness of what condemnation is before we can begin to experience the freedom that comes with being released from it. What is condemnation? Condemnation is the holy and just sentence of God against the wickedness of sin. That's what condemnation is. It is the holy and just sentence of God against the wickedness of sin. That's what condemnation is. It is God's holy, meaning perfect, just, meaning fair, 
sentence. It is his declaration against the wickedness of sin. Condemnation is God's to give. Why? Because he is the only one who is holy, holy, holy. He is the only one who is perfect. He is the source and the standard of that which would claim to be good, righteous, perfect, whole. And he knows, and only he knows, when it is lacking. He is the only one who can issue this condemnation against the wickedness of sin. Condemnation is what we, it's what you deserve by our very nature. From the moment we're born into this world, we are born under the just and holy condemnation of God against sin. It is what we deserve. It is the status of those who are condemned by their sin. This state is referred to throughout Romans in various ways. This broken condition, this wickedness of sin, we hear it discussed in Romans 1 as idolatry. In Romans chapter 3, we hear that no one is righteous. In Romans chapter 5, we hear that we are born in Adam. In Romans 6, we are called slaves of sin. In Romans 7, it's referred to as the body of death. That is our broken estate. We are born into this world with an eye factory for a heart. We are born into this world unrighteous. We are born into this world with a bad representative in Adam. We are born into this world as slaves of sin. We are born into this world with a body of death. And subsequently, we are under the holy and just sentence of God against sin. This is the bad news of the good news of the gospel. Condemnation is bad news. And it's bad news because no one by nature, is free from it. No one. No one. No one is immune. No one is exempt from the holy, just sentence of God against the wickedness of sin. We are born into this world condemned by God. And you might wonder, how is this good news? It's not. It's not good news. There is no celebration of our condemnation, but we cannot begin to celebrate our salvation until we have felt the heaviness of our condemnation. And I tell you, I fear that for many of us, we have settled for a cheap grace because we never truly believed a radical grace was needed. I fear that for many of us, the Christian life and Christian salvation seems malnourished and it seems feeble and frail because we do not truly believe, nor have we ever truly believed, that we are in need of a radical salvation. And we cannot begin to be people of a vibrant faith until we begin to believe that our Savior has done something dramatic. Our Savior has done something drastic. Our Savior has done something extreme and radical. And it is to release us from the condemnation that we would deserve and we would receive apart from the intervening grace of God. There is not a celebration of our condemnation, but we must feel it. As the old theologian said, till sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. And for many of us, we do not taste the putridness and the bitterness of sin because we are not convinced that we stand in radical need of grace. But we do. 
And whether you're prepared to say it or not, you do. Whether you're prepared to own it or acknowledge it or not, you do. You stand in need of a great grace. And it's not a you problem, it's a we problem. It's us. No one is exempt from this. No one is born with a get-out-of-condemnation-free card. But we are born in a world in which God has said, I have come to seek and save the lost, and no one who belongs to me will fail in that salvation. There is condemnation, but it's not where the story ends. What is the opposite of condemnation? Well, Paul's already introduced it in Romans 5.1. In many ways, this is like, this kind of almost like Romans 5.1 begins this arc. There is therefore justification, Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. You can look at Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1 as two places on an arc in Romans where God is telling us through the Apostle Paul that we must be justified. We must be declared righteous. You could read Romans 8.1 a different way. You could read it to say, there is therefore justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. That would be the positive way of stating what Paul has written here in the negative. That there is no Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is to say there is justification for those who are in Christ. There is righteousness provided for those who are in Christ Jesus. To not be condemned is to be freed. It is to be released. It is to have the shackles broken from the human heart. And there is a work that we cannot accomplish on our own. We cannot break the bonds that bind us. We cannot break the shackles of sin and shame and Satan on our human heart. It is a work that stands impossible in front of us. You and I, we cannot release ourselves from sin. We cannot free ourselves from condemnation. It's a work that only God can do, and he has done it in only one place, and he's invited everyone to come and make their home in the house of God's salvation in Jesus. It is a radical claim. There is salvation in only one, and all who enter in are saved. There is justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be condemned is to be sentenced. It is to be judged. But sentenced by whom? God. God. God, God sentences us. He sentences us because of the wickedness of sin. And the only one who can acquit us is the one that we stand condemned by. The only one who can save us is the one who we stand condemned under. Because God is a judge, but he is not like the judge of the world. He is a gracious judge. He is a judge who not only forgives but fellowships. He is a judge who is not only holy but gracious. And all of these things are undivided in God himself. We have to acknowledge the weight of condemnation. We have to understand that we stand condemned. And Paul's presuming that you understand why. Because you might be wondering, well, why? What have I done? What have I done to earn this condemnation? What have I done to merit this judgment? Paul is presuming that you followed along in his letter. And for some of us, we have. But for others of us, it may strike us as unusual that we're born into this world by nature, condemned by God. And I understand. Because sometimes you can kind of just look at your life and be like, oh, it feels okay. 
I haven't done anything extremely bad. I haven't done anything that seems radically wrong. For what would I be condemned for? What stands against me? We remember earlier in Paul's letters that he's telling us that the problem, it didn't even really begin with you, it began with Adam. All the way back in the garden. You see, you and I are broken because someone sinned. And that sinner, Adam, was a representative on our behalf. Like an ambassador in a foreign country. If you were to do something inappropriate, it then is reflected. It's as if your home country, it's as if the leader of your home country has done it there. Adam and Eve were our ambassadors in the garden. They were our representatives. And when they sinned, we all sinned. We are recipients not only of the guilt of sin, we are recipients of the consequences against sin. We are born into this world with the wrong representative. We are born into this world standing before God and representing us before God is Adam. And he is a bad representative. He's a bad substitute. He has already failed and he stands condemned. He's not who we want representing us, but as we're born into this world, he is the one who stands in our stead. And we need a substitute. We need a change of representative because Adam lacks what we desperately need and he cannot provide it for us. He lacks righteousness and so do we. And Adam cannot give what only Christ has. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned astride and gone away. Everyone has turned away from the Lord. We are born into this broken groove of the world. And we need to be set free from it. Righteousness is what we need. And because we lack it, we stand condemned. You and I are born into this world with the wrong designation, with the wrong status, with the wrong identity, with the wrong foundation. You can call it a dozen things, but it's referred to as the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? For like condemnation, if we are condemned because we lack this righteousness, we should know what this righteousness is. The righteousness of God is who God is. It's his nature. It's his nature. The righteousness of God is who God is. It's his nature. It's his character. We are born with an unrighteous nature. We are broken. We are not conformed to what is good. God is righteous by nature. He is the definition of what is good. And we have fallen short of it. So righteousness is who God is. But it's not just who God is. Righteousness is what God does. It's his holy standard. Righteousness is not just God's character, it's what God does. It's his holy standard for the world. When Paul says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, he's talking about the righteousness of God displayed in the nature of the world and in the law of God. And we have fallen short of it. Righteousness is what God does. It is his perfection displayed and we fail. We are unable to do what is righteous by nature. Even when we attempt good, our good is often seasoned with arrogance, pride, ulterior motives. We fail to do what is good. We fail God's righteous standard. But the good news is that righteousness is not just who God is. It's not just what God does. It's how God saves. 
Righteousness is how God saves. It's his source of salvation. You see, God provides the righteousness we need in Jesus. And you wonder, how does God give me his righteousness? How does God give me his righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, for your sake, for my sake, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we receive the righteousness of God? Because God condescends in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, the Son of God looks at his people and says, I will take upon myself your worst, your unrighteousness, and in exchange, I will give you my best. God graciously provides what we desperately need. It is righteousness. God provides salvation and freedom by providing righteousness in Jesus Christ. It is the foundation of our salvation. And it is what God is lavish in giving to us in Jesus. I was five years old when I received God's righteousness in Jesus. And I'll tell you, I did not know much, but I had become convinced. I had become convinced that I stood apart from God. I became convinced that I stood condemned by God because of the wickedness of sin. And I was in the evening light. I could see, I can still remember the light from the foyer at First Baptist Church of Merritt, Texas, where my father served as a pastor. And I was playing in the parking lot. And I can remember the moment that I felt rescue. I can remember the moment where it clicked in my heart that God had come for me to rescue me. And I could not have written a treatise or an essay on my brokenness. I could not have given a sermon on God's grace. I had not murdered. I had not stolen. I had not committed adultery. I had not done anything to be locked up into any jail. But I woke up that morning in Adam, and I went to bed that night in Jesus. I woke up that morning a five-year-old condemned by God. As off-putting as that might seem to us, I woke up that morning in Adam, separated from God, both in the blessedness of what grace means here and what it means in heaven forever, and I went to bed that night in the salvation of Jesus. And I had done nothing to earn it. Not a thing. And And the last 30 years has been trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus while we wait for the kingdom. And I don't know what part of the journey you're on. I really don't. I wish I did. But I know this. I know that the same God who's inviting five-year-olds in Merritt, Texas to believe is inviting us today to receive the grace of God and salvation. And if not to receive it for the first time, to be reminded for the thousandth so that we would walk in the grace that God has provided in Jesus because there's not another way to live in God's world. There's not another way to try to strive by our own obedience. It will never work out. God is inviting us to live on the foundation of grace. We are rescued from condemnation. And we are rescued from condemnation by God. How? How does this happen? Well, it happens 
by receiving what God has provided through faith. I like to call this making our home with God in Jesus. I was born into this world in the wrong home. The foundation was broken and cracked. The walls were falling apart. I had no idea. Some of us live five years there. Some of us live 50 years there. Some of us live our whole lives there. But God invites us into a new home. And it's not a home that we can build, but it's a home that he graciously gives and that we can thankfully receive. And we receive this home by placing our faith in Jesus. By placing our faith in Jesus. And faith isn't just one thing. Faith is a, is a multidimensional reality. Faith is not just assent, but it is that faith is believing what is true. That's a part of faith. Faith is saying, yes, I believe that I am a sinner in need of grace and God has provided salvation in Jesus. Faith is believing, but that's only a part of it. Faith is also affection. It's worship. It's saying, I don't just believe that it's true. I believe it's gloriously true and I'm glad that it is. Belief overflowing into worship and thanksgiving and praise and wonder. But it doesn't just stop there. Because faith isn't only belief and it's not only affection, it's also allegiance. It's saying God has saved me and his way is better, so I'm now laying down my life to follow in his way. It's all of those things wrapped up together. And in the moment of faith, the moment of faith is going, surrender. God, I, I surrender myself to you. I cannot do this. I stand under the, your condemnation, but I want to receive your salvation. It begins by just surrendering, by trusting in God, by laying our faith at his feet. And when we do that, our representative before God changes. Because I wasn't just born into the wrong home. I was born with the wrong representative. And now after I have placed my faith in Jesus, it is no longer Adam who represents me in the court of heaven. It is the son of God, Jesus Christ. And I stand beloved in him because his belovedness is unbroken forever. He never loses me. Not because my faith is great, but because his faithfulness is forever. I have a change of representative in the court of heaven I'm born under condemnation. You are born under condemnation. We are born with Adam as our representative. But when we experience what we call the new birth, being born again, our representative changes. Let me just ask you, just, just, just for a second, who represents you in heaven? Who represents you before the Father? Do you think it's you? Because you are a bad representative of you. If your greatest hope is how articulate you will be before when you appear before God, that is a feeble hope. Who represents you before God? Do you have confidence in who stands in your stead before God? Because that change of representative, it's fundamental to our salvation, condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus, not only the home of our salvation, but the representative of our salvation before God. And lastly, when we place our faith in Jesus, we aren't just given a new home. We're not just given a new representative. We're given a new identity. We're given a new status. We cannot receive the benefits of Christ 
if we seek to remain outside of him. We have to surrender our desire autonomy. We have to surrender our desire for independence. We have to surrender our desire for freedom from God and embrace through faith a new identity in Jesus Christ. And we have to be willing to lose ourselves in order that we might gain what God has. The Heidelberg Catechism, we recited it every week for the last five weeks, begins with what? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both in body and in soul, in life and in death. To whom? To my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus will tell the disciples, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to pick up your cross and die daily. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Galatians says, the Bible is full of testimony that if you are seeking to preserve yourself and to get God, you will end up with yourself, but you will not end up with God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is one of the most significant chapters in Scripture to help us remember the bedrock of our Christian identity and the source of Christian salvation. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, is crucial. It is the, uh, the, the building block of how we understand how we are saved. Theologian John Frame says that being in Christ is the most general thing that you can say about a Christian. That if you were looking for the most general descriptor for what it means to be a Christian, you would say, it is someone who is in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. If we want to experience salvation, we must be in Christ Jesus. If we want to be justified and acquitted and forgiven, we must be in Christ Jesus. If we want shelter from the storms of sin, death, shame, and Satan, we must be in Christ Jesus. If we want to be free from condemnation, we must be in Christ Jesus. If we want to be free from the judgment of death and hell, we must be in Christ Jesus. All that the good that God has for you in the life of the world and the life of his kingdom is in Christ Jesus. And the bad news is that we don't start life in Christ Jesus. We start life outside of Christ Jesus. And all the good that God has for us is in Christ. It's in Christ. And some of you, some of you have lived your whole life adjacent to God's home looking at the benefits, being told of the benefits, being told of the blessings. You've gotten just close enough to where you're, you, you really think, I am associated to Jesus. It will not be enough to be associated with Jesus. You must be in Jesus Christ. Some of us spend our whole life looking at all the good that God has for us as if by virtue of just observing it, then we could receive it. But no, we must participate in it through faith in Christ Jesus. Do not linger on the outskirts of God's kingdom, hoping and wishing for a day when you can eat, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Come into Christ's kingdom and taste and see that the Lord is good. 
What screen door do you think exists on God's heart? What do you think you've done that God is going to hold against you? What do you think that you've done that God is going to be surprised by when you bring it to the altar of his forgiveness? There is nothing. There is nothing. In Christ Jesus, we are free from condemnation. And Romans 8 is verse after verse of invitation of learning to live your life in the home of God's salvation in Jesus. When we enter into this home, we are met with the declaration, Kyle Worley, no longer condemned. Kyle Worley, forgiven. Kyle Worley, freed. Kyle Worley, rescued. That's true for many of you, and there's no reason it can't be true of all of us. God's grace doesn't run out. It's not measured out in thimbles. Spilled out in oceans. Unfathomable. And we stand in front of it today as God speaks to us from his word. Two questions. Will you receive God's invitation into the home of his salvation? And if you already have, will you tell everyone about it? Everyone. Or will you stand at the greatest supper, a table that never runs empty? And will you eat and drink and be merry while others hunger and thirst for the kingdom? Those are the questions we ask in light of this verse. We'll spend the next 11 weeks exploring them together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I thank you that grace is more than a concept. I thank you that the story of the gospel is more than a story. I thank you that Savior is more than just a title we affix to your name. It's what you've done. God, for some in here, they have lingered too long looking at your home through the windows. And I pray that today they would hear the invitation to enter in through the door. Jesus Christ. Others of us have stood at the table feasting on all the good that God has provided and we have forgotten the surprise of grace and the desperate need that our world stands in to hear it. Awaken our hearts. Awaken our hearts towards salvation. Awaken our hearts towards proclamation. And in all of these things, let us stand on the new foundation that God has provided in Jesus, your righteousness. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.